0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off: U.S. versus China Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 231, listener question extravaganza number 4. Thank you to Peter, Joshua, Richard, and Brenton for their support on Patreon, where they now get ad-free versions to all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released every month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more information. This is our fourth and final listener question episode, and there are 20 questions to answer. Uh, Stick around to the end for news on the future of this podcast and the future of podcasting for me, which hopefully some of you will be interested in. First up, we have some trivia from Mark. An interesting fact that I recently learned, which you might find interesting, was around which country declared war on Germany twice. That is, which country declared war on Germany twice during the First World War? The answer is Romania, who declared war a second time immediately after being liberated in 1918. Whilst it was purely a political ploy to seek out an advantage during the peace talks, I thought it would make for a good World War I pub quiz question. I think that is indeed a fantastic bit of trivia. Uh, My favorite piece of trivia is when did the last German troops stop fighting the Allied forces? And the answer to that is November 25th in East Africa, because it took two weeks for them to find out about the armistice, but I think the one about Romania might actually be better. Our next question comes from Spencer on Twitter. Uh, Can you talk about the Agadir crisis and other events that almost sparked the war? The Agadir Crisis would occur in 1911, and it was an event that would greatly escalate tensions between Britain and Germany. In April of 1911, there was a rebellion in Morocco, which was a French colony at the time but somewhat contested, which is why you will sometimes hear the Agadir Crisis referred to as the Second Moroccan Crisis. Germany was at this point far more involved in African affairs, and wanted to become more involved as well. And when the rebellion broke out, the German Navy would send a small gunboat, the SMS Panther, to Agadir. This set off all kinds of alarm bells in London. Any projection of naval power around the world was bound to get the Royal Navy's attention. But this had the extra importance, due to the state of relations between the Royal Navy and the German Navy at this point in history. In 1911, the British and Germans had been in a naval building war for several years. The creation of the HMS Dreadnought in 1905, and then the German 1908 Naval Law, and the reactions on both sides to both of those events, had triggered a naval arms race that would not really end until the First World War began. The German Navy, led by Tirpitz, was directly and publicly targeting the Royal Navy with their building program, and at this point in history, if you wanted to get on the bad side of London, challenging the supremacy of the Royal Navy was the easiest way to do so. All of this additional tension just added fuel to the Agadir crisis, which on its own, probably would not have been a very notable event. After the crisis was started, it would in fact of course not end in war, but it would cause the Royal Navy to reevaluate both its preparedness and its strategic situation, making it more prepared for the war when it came in 1914. Next up, we have two questions that I, I sort of grouped as they're kind of in the same topic. The first is from Ed, who would say, I'm interested in the role of the Canadian expeditionary units. My wife's grandfather was there, and I have pictures and shell art from him during that time. And then from Noah, who asks, My question concerns the Commonwealth troops in World War I. I've heard that they were better soldiers than their British and French comrades. What made them better soldiers? Okay, so Canadian and Commonwealth forces, of course, played an important role for the British, and, and therefore the Allied war effort. The first big battle that the Canadians would be a part of was the Second Battle of Ypres in early 1915, which would also be the first use of poison gas on the Western Front. The Australians and New Zealanders were obviously at Gallipoli in early 1915. From that point forward, all of the troops from around the Empire would be engaged in most of the major fighting in which the British Army was involved. Towards the end of the war, they would be treated as premier troops, and often played important roles in offensives. This practice actually got some criticism from the Dominions. Their troops were being put in a position of, 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 I guess, honor, but as the troops put at the center of offensives and given the most difficult objectives, they also suffered higher casualties. As for relative quality, I generally believe that they were not drastically better than other British units. So one of the big advantages that the Commonwealth had was that their greatest contribution came late in the conflict, and especially in the last year of the war. I think this has a tendency to skew their reputation, because just in general, they start appearing in larger numbers as the Allies start to become better at launching offensives. Most of the youngest fittest soldiers from the home islands had been spent in the battles of 1915 and 16, which would see some of the greatest failures of the British army. That meant that by the time you get to 1918, the standards for British draftees has been lowered to allow more men to be brought into the ranks. Given the lower percentage of casualties among the Commonwealth forces when compared to their total population, when the war turned and the Allies finally began to find some material superiority and more appropriate strategies as well, the successful offensives at the end of the war often featured these Commonwealth soldiers who were generally younger and fitter in primary roles when compared to the British forces. So just to summarize, the Commonwealth soldiers were very important to the Allied victory, but I do not necessarily feel that the best Commonwealth soldiers should be considered head and shoulders above the best British soldiers that appeared in the war. They just ended up appearing at different times and in different strategic situations. Uh, Next question is again from Noah, who by the way is Noah Tretzner of the History of Vikings podcast which I quite enjoy. His next question is also, being a Winnipegger, what was the effect of the end of the war on the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919? The Winnipeg General Strike was a strike in Winnipeg in 1919 after the war was over, and it was probably more influenced by events in Russia and the general wave of increase in support for socialism and workers' rights around the world. However, the post-war strike was an event that happened in many countries, even those on the winning side of the conflict. Each strike had different specific causes and consequences, but most of them were rooted in the economic downturn after the war, pent-up labor unrest from during the war, and then a rise in the support for socialism and its different view on the role of workers in society. Even when strikes were not necessarily politically motivated, in many cases the violent reaction to them by those in power was politically motivated. The Red Scare probably is is not the right word, but there was definitely concerns about socialism and communism and its possibility of spreading to other countries. In many cases, this allowed political leaders to paint the striking workers with a very unflattering brush, which has in some cases, like, like in the Winnipeg strike, remained to this day. It also gave the political leaders the excuse to quickly escalate to violence in an attempt to control the workers' actions, which often resulted in people being killed. I would say that the way that the war changed the relationship between workers and the political industrial leaders in the countries around the world probably is not discussed enough, and it's an area I would love to read more about. Noah had one more question. Anyway, my next question is, what effect did the royal, royal family have on the British war effort and Versailles? The British royal family did not really play an active role in the war. Uh, By this point in history, the relationship between the royal family and the British empire was not drastically different than what it is today. And this meant that most of the power within the empire rested in the civilian leadership and parliament. The royal family were figureheads. Technically still heads of state, but, but mostly figureheads, They did contribute to several morale-boosting causes, though. For example, they sent Christmas gifts from the Queen and the Princess to the Men in the Trenches, and they sponsored and supported hospitals at home and at the front. Those type of things. But they were not really involved in sort of the day-to-day operations of the war. Next question is a somewhat common one from Francis. I would still like to know the exact relationship between Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Why Hindenburg is the boss of Ludendorff, but doesn't seem to do anything. So in some ways, Hindenburg and Ludendorff have a special relationship, uh, but in some ways they just sort of have a typical general and chief of staff relationship, with that relationship augmented by the personalities of the two people involved. All German army units, above a certain size, had a general officer who was in charge, and he would have a a chief of staff. When the war started, Hindenburg was a very famous and popular general, but he was retired, and was probably quite happy living the good life in East Prussia. However, when the war started, many retired generals were called back into the army to lead the expanded German forces, and Hindenburg was one of these. Ludendorff was skilled, experienced, and very willing to take control of a situation. And this meant that when they were paired together, Hindenburg slipped into a role where he was participating in leading the army, but in many instances was more than willing to defer to Ludendorff's plans and ideas. The particulars of how this happened was kind of unique in the German army, but, but the outcome was not. I would compare the arrangements to some of the armies commanded by German royalty, like Crown Prince Wilhelm, the son of the Kaiser, and Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria. They were both military leaders, they both led armies on the Western Front, but they relied heavily on their experienced and well-respected chiefs of staff when it came to planning and execution. In all of these cases, the chief of staff was seen as the professional and was the technically skilled leader. The big difference for Ludendorff is that he was more than willing to take a very open and outspoken role. I also think that the contributions of Ludendorff at the time were perhaps a bit more masked than they are today. We have the benefit of hindsight, but during the war, Hindenburg often received a lot of the credit for all of the actions of the men he led, all the plans that were put in place and all the offensives that were successful, which is part of why he probably never made any serious moves to change the relationship he had with Ludendorff until after the war when the two of them would break off contact. Next question is from John. Given the sheer scale of casualties in World War I, I have been quite curious about the fate, handling and logistics of prisoners of war, which sometimes are a surprisingly high fraction of the casualties. To elaborate, here are some of the questions I've had to think about. Where do they go first when captured? Where do they end up long term? For how long? Were there ever mass prisoner exchanges? Or by the end of the war, did each side have tens or hundreds of thousands of the other men stored away in camps and such? Given the horribly low resources of Germany and Austria-Hungary, I shudder to think how they could even try to take care of so many men. Was it expected that aid would be sent by the prisoners' countries to sustain them? That seems like a fascinating political and logistical knot right there. And if food is being sent to prisoners, wouldn't the central powers just take that food for their own starving men? Also, how soon did prisoners get returned after the armistice was signed? Wasn't it an immediate flood into each country of of those pent-up men? Okay, so there's a lot of questions there, which I will sort of answer pretty rapidly here. When first captured, the men would generally be sent to a collection point behind the lines, often far enough back that they were not in immediate danger. They would then be transferred to prisoner of war camps, and yes, there were many of them. I've seen numbers as high as 9 million total prisoners spread among all of the countries involved in the war. That number is, is fuzzy due to the breakdown of official statistics in places like Russia. There were no large prisoner transfers that I know of, at least until countries started dropping out of the war. And food was definitely a problem, but there was at least some efforts to take care of the prisoners in almost all the countries. Obviously, the economic situation within a country would cause this to be better or worse depending on the availability of food. Food shortages in Germany and Austria-Hungary caused problems. There were efforts by the Red Cross and organizations within both Britain and France to ship food to their prisoners in Germany. And this was done with the permission of the British and German government. yet had to have the permission of the British government because they were running the blockade. And this was also often in the form of parcels to specific prisoners. Uh, families would also be able to send food to the camps, which would arrive just like normal mail. This did result in situations where the Allied soldiers were eating better than the guards that were guarding them. Soldiers from other countries were not as lucky, and would only have available what their hosts provided for them, which was often barely enough to live on. Notably, the Italians refused to send any food uh, to their prisoners in Austria-Hungary, and they did this out of the belief that soldiers who had surrendered were not worth support, and should be sort of punished for surrendering. I do want to throw out there that Just because the soldiers in some of the central powers or even in some of the other countries were sort of barely surviving on the food that was provided to them, it was almost always the case where it's not like food was plentiful in those countries. You know, the soldiers at the front were on basically starvation rations for Austria-Hungary, and the people of Vienna were dying in the street because of lack of food. So it's not like there was a lot of excess floating around. I think there were probably almost certainly instances where soldiers in any country took some of the food that was sent to the prisoners. Uh, Let's call it a tax on the goods sent to the prisoners. But this does not seem to have been a common occurrence. I think from an administrative perspective, they were just glad that they were not totally on the hook for giving food to the prisoners, meaning more for everyone else. And it was also a really easy way to keep the prisoners happy. Prisoners were largely released almost as soon as the armistice was signed among countries, although they were not always given uh, means of transport. An immediate flood was probably a good description, as former prisoners walked, rode, or found any way possible to make their way home. Some of these journeys took longer than others, like the Czech soldiers who had to traverse the entire length of Siberia, or the German and Austrian prisoners who were housed in Canada during the war. Uh, Next question is from Mark. I recently read a brief article online that mentioned that during the Eastern Front campaigns, there were instances where both the Central Powers and Russian forces agreed to short-term ceasefires and actually teamed up against large packs of wolves, which had been harassing both armies, attracted by numerous dead and injured soldiers. So, I've seen some articles referencing this event, or events like it from time to time, and they all seem to point back to articles that floated around American newspapers in 1917. Given the nature of the reports, I'm generally inclined to believe that such stories are, are, are apocryphal. I'm sure that wolves were at times problematic, but I don't see why a truce would ever be necessary to handle them. There were literally thousands of soldiers with an equal number of guns on both sides. Surely either side would easily handle a wolf problem. There were some truces between the armies for other reasons, like the disposal of, of the dead at times, and, but truces were generally far more common outside the Western Front, like on the Russian Front. If anybody out there has an article with more concrete information about this wolf situation, please send it over, but I find this story very hard to believe. Next question is from Sam. Uh, One question I have is the role of the Vatican during the Great War. Uh, People always talk about their role in World War II, but it's hardly ever mentioned in reference to the First World War. So the Vatican did not play much of a role in the war, uh, beyond their pushes early in the conflict to get both sides to negotiate a peace. They would also attempt to get all of the belligerents to agree to truces on major Christian holidays like Christmas, which they weren't really successful at either. Neither of these efforts were great, and they didn't last very long, and so they would mostly be ignored for the entirety of the conflict, which is probably why you don't hear much about them. Next question is from Mark, which I'm pretty sure is a different Mark than the previous Mark. I'm interested to know more about Switzerland and how they were impacted during the conflict. Whilst they remained neutral, I expect it was a difficult time for the country, particularly in terms of imports and exports, given that it was landlocked on all sides by combatants. So Switzerland definitely experienced some difficulties during the war. As you mentioned, they were of course neutral during the conflict, and throughout the war they would struggle to both stay neutral and maintain essential uh, essential relations outside of the country for importing items like food. The supply of food would be very problematic fairly early in the war, uh, the same as it was for a lot of countries in Europe. But the Swiss government would be one of the first to introduce rationing, which helped carry the country through the later parts of the war when items were becoming more and more scarce. Derek has our next question What did Japan do in World War I? I know they declared war on Germany in 1914, I think on the 6th of August, and that they came out of the war with an empire, but what all did they do? So Japan definitely entered the war right at the start. In the first month of the war, they took over several German Pacific colonies, and they would end up gaining control of them in the Treaty of Versailles, which would play a big role in World War II. Beyond these early actions, they would not really be involved in very much fighting. They would send a few destroyers to work with the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean, and they would send some troops into Siberia late into the war, but that was about it. This is what the Japanese wanted. They wanted the benefits of being on the winning side with the absolute minimum possible investment. They were largely successful in this. They would even be the primary reason that China did not play a larger role in the fighting. The Chinese were more than willing to send troops to the Western Front. They wanted to use it as a way to sort of gain favor with a lot of the powerful nations in Europe. And the Japanese would actively prevent this from happening because they feared that they would then have to send Japanese troops because they wanted to retain their position as the most important ally on the Allied side in Asia during the war. And to do that, they had to make sure that China didn't one-up them. Philip asks, How effective were trench raids? I think they were probably considered effective, uh, and a success a good portion of the time. Definitive statements are hard to make about trench raids, sort of as a concept, due to how varied they were during the war. They varied in both goals and size, and throughout the war they morphed from almost ad hoc actions to large pre-planned attacks that looked a lot like scaled-down offensives. At the most basic level, trench raids would involve an attempt to approach the enemy positions at night without alerting them, and then hopefully a brief bit of violence while trying to capture a prisoner or several prisoners, and then it was generally accepted that at that point, the enemy would be notified. Or as the British private Walter Spence explains, quote, "'Well, you'd try to get down to a part of the enemy trench where you thought it was least manned, you see, and you'd grab a prisoner if you could, and of course he'd give a gawk, and that's when the fun started.'" As the war progressed, raids also changed, and sometimes they were launched without any stealth component, and instead the artillery would just open up in a fire plan to box in some enemy positions which would be assaulted to try and capture prisoners. It was almost universal that officers liked to launch trench raids, liked to keep the men active, and thought that raids made for better soldiers. The men were often not quite as enthusiastic. Here is one soldier, Charles Quinnell, who talks about it. Quote, we knew it was a waste of time, it was a waste of time, and we just hated it. But as time went on to get the information, there was some general about 30 miles behind the lines wanting to know who was on the opposite side, and he would send a message, raid so-and-so and get prisoners, just like that. You know, he ought to have had the job himself. Early on, men often did not have specialized equipment when asked to go on raids, like large amounts of grenades and hand-to-hand weapons that they, and they had to improvise. Later, they would have specialized equipment and more precise tactics on how to execute the raids to accomplish their goals. This specialized equipment at times greatly varied from what was used for normal fighting. Here is a lengthy quote from orders given to German troops who launched a raid near Beaumont-Hamel on the Somme Front in 1916. Quote, Dress and Equipment Field caps are to be worn, no shoulder boards or insignia, identification marks on equipment are to be rendered illegible, no written material in pockets, belt hooks are to be removed from jackets, as a recognition mark, all participants are to stitch white bands on both right and left arms, two first field dressings are to be carried in the front jacket pockets, gas masks are not to be taken, each man is to carry six hand grenades, four stick grenades on the waist belt, two egg-shaped grenades in the jacket pockets. Two men of each patrol are to carry rifles. The remainder are to carry pistols, Model 08, each with a filled reserve magazine and daggers. So, as you can see, that varies a bit from how people were attacking at the time, especially, you know, leaving the gas masks behind and such. Now, back to the question of how effective they were, I would say that they were probably generally effective— They had varied objectives, and they often achieved them by capturing a few enemy soldiers, or gaining information about their defenses, or just finding out which units were across the line. If nothing else, the officers in charge certainly believed that they were effective, even if the men would have disagreed. Philip's question on trench raids rolls very nicely into this question from Jean-Luc, who asks, I'm very curious for you to elaborate on what actually happened when you say the German army had learned the hour of an attack from captured soldiers, or or some such. How was questioning done? Were soldiers ever judged by their peers or in military tribunals? Uh, Afterwards, did some resist? So often these uh, situations would begin with trench raids, where the men would be captured, although it could also happen during an attack, or really at any time the men were in the trenches. There would be an interrogation, especially early in the war. This would often be able to learn a lot during these interrogations, before sort of the armies on both sides were like, hey, maybe you should not do that, everybody, don't tell them anything. I've not seen anything about widespread use of violent interrogation methods, or even really forceful questioning. They were also not typically held for lengthy periods near the front, under the assumption that most of the men who were in a position to be captured did not often know very much information beyond the immediate situation. Working with prisoners was an area that evolved greatly during the war. Um, Early in the fighting, it would have just been whatever officers were present in that area of the front during the questioning, and the amount of guidance they received on what to do was minimal. They were just using their best judgment. Later, though, uh, better procedures, training, even specialized intelligence groups were created to try and maximize the benefits from these prisoners, But also at the same time, guidance and and thought was given to how to prepare men for being captured if that should happen. I've not read anything about any widespread persecution of prisoners who did provide answers to enemy questions either during or after the war. so come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Next up are two questions on mostly the same topic. The first is from Itzhak, I don't recall much talking of the warring parties' clandestine services, or of the military intelligence beyond mostly interrogating captured soldiers and other reactive activities, like analyzing found documents or decoding intercepted messages. Were there these branches just not active, impactful enough to be mentioned, or am I missing something? And then also from Alec, uh, my question is about espionage in World War I. What were some espionage methods? How did these evolve as the war progressed? Who, what were some of the spy networks or individuals? So I've grouped these two questions together uh, to discuss espionage in general during the war. One of the problems with espionage activities after the start of hostilities was one of communications. At the start of the war, it was generally challenging to communicate in anything like real time from one region to another. This limited the ability of spy networks to enact some of what I would consider the classic variety of your World War II or Cold War uh, spy activities. There were networks of Allied informants, mostly within territories occupied by the German army in Belgium and northern France. In these areas, the networks were curated, often by agents sent specifically for that purpose, who were inserted via the neutrals in the Low Countries early in the conflict. Their purpose was oriented uh, towards intelligence gathering and far less towards sabotage or other forms of hostile resistance. The Allied networks in German occupied territory might observe railways and the traffic on them, but would very rarely actively interdict that traffic, and there was also always a lag time between when something would be seen and then when that could be finally reported up to London for action to actually be taken on it. Um, The Central Powers were in a slightly more difficult position, although the Germans did have an espionage network in the United States when it was neutral, and in some other countries as well. I would say that it was almost a rule that the fears of espionage activities were always far greater than the actual impact of existing espionage networks on events. The far more important area was in signals, uh, reactive activity as Isaac uh, refers to them. This came in the form of wireless interception, decryption, and other methods of gaining access to enemy communications at both the local and international level. I think that this would change quite a bit after the war, as the espionage services of all of the belligerents during the Second World War would be able to take advantages of advances in communications equipment and mobility to be more impactful on the course of events. Next up is Jonathan, who has a question about money. As everyone has been talking about money and debt lately, I'm wondering how much debt did each country that participated in the war go into at the end of the war, or how much did they have before the war started, and how much did they gain or lose depending on the outcome of the conflict? The short answer on this one is, is a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Like an unfathomably large amount of money. Before the start of the war, the British Empire was almost certainly the richest nation in the world, uh, and they basically bankrolled the Allied war effort until late 1916. At that point, it was reaching the end of its financial resources, and would have to start getting large sums of money from the United States, who then took over the task of paying the bills for the Allies when the United States entered the war in 1917. Most nations would go through a similar process of spending through their nation's gold reserves, or whatever reserves they had, and then they would go into debt to allies, and they would try and reach out for foreign loans, often to the United States. Along the way, many nations would try to find help from private citizens through the use of war bonds, but that often covered only a fraction of the total costs of the war. From everything I've seen on the estimates of the total cost of the war, they vary a lot. I don't know I've really seen a really good final number for a lot of countries that seems well researched. There are tables of numbers floating around online, none of which seem to have solid sources that are less than 90 years old. Any numbers that are determined then have to run through like a conversion calculator to United States dollars or British pounds, and then also have to deal with 90, you know, almost I guess almost 100 years of inflation, so trying to translate them into modern currency is challenging. I think this is part of why answers to these kind of questions are rarely boiled down to specific numbers, and are generally spoken about in generalities and outcomes. What is known is that many of the European countries would start the war in a relatively stable financial position. Many of them, like France, Germany, and Britain, would be in a a very good financial position. They would end the war heavily in debt, mostly to the British or the Americans, However, a lot of war debt would end up just disappearing after the war. For example, Russia's debt to both the public and private sectors in Britain would not be repaid, with the British government deciding to forgive the debt during trade negotiations. Similarly, money lent to Austria-Hungary disappeared. The real outcome of the spending, in geopolitical terms, was a drastic reduction in the overall wealth of Europe, and especially the British Empire and instead the shifting of global financial power to the United States. Many European countries on the Allied side had gotten into debt with war spending, and on uh, loans after the war to rebuild. On the losing side, it was mostly reconstruction and reparations loans that would mean that countries like Germany and those in Eastern Europe would also be heavily in debt to the United States. Raymond asks... I'm always wondering how European events from our period of study, that being the First World War, affect today's European views of war, nationalist sentiment, and relationships. It seems like war was a predictable fact of existence then, but but also in much of this century. So I think there are definitely different views towards war in 1914 when compared with after the war, and especially after the Second World War. In 1914, it had been almost a century since Napoleon had been defeated, and since that event, although there had been some regional conflicts, nothing had cascaded into a European-wide war. This created a scenario where the public at large had kind of lost the memory of, of how bad a larger war could be, and from a political perspective, the statesmen of the period focused mostly on the positives of what could happen for their countries and not the costs that would have to be paid. Also, from a technical and military perspective, there had been no way of testing many of the new technologies and tactics employed in 1914, which resulted in military leaders all over Europe, drastically overestimating their forces' abilities to decisively win the war. Four years of conflict would change this viewpoint, and then after the war there would be a concerted push for some way of preventing a similar conflict in the future. This took a variety of forms, be it an attempt to make sure Germany was not in a position to start another war, through reparations and and punishment, but there were also more cooperative efforts to kind of work on world peace, like the League of Nations. It was the beginning of the modern push for these large international organizations, and this trend would falter when confronted by the radical and violent ideologies of the interwar period. Notably fascism and Nazism, of course, But then after the Second World War, the international community would once again try, you know, again, with the creation of the United Nations. I think it was a very similar mindset that that would see the creation of the European Union uh, a few decades later. I think in recent years, the rise of various nationalist parties around the world belie a sort of general questioning by some people about the role that international bodies like the United Nations and the European Union should play in the modern world. In my own country of the United States, um, you see this increase in questioning of bodies like the United Nations and NATO, which are organizations formed specifically due to hopes that they would prevent further large conflicts. I don't want to make it sound like I think we're in a June 1914 situation here, on the brink of some large war. But I do think we may be moving into another period of international uncertainty, as the structures put in place after World War II begin to break down, and the memories of the last Great War start to fade. On more of a podcast structure note, Hendrik asks, You apparently did lots of reading for your research, but did you also use primary sources? At first glance, I can't see any on your sources list. And talking about books, do you know David Stevenson's 1914-1918, to and if so, what did you think of it? Well, starting off with Stevenson's work, I think Stevenson's book is a, a, a totally decent sort of one-volume history of the war. It's probably not my recommendation for such a thing. I usually go with A World Undone by G.J. Meyer or the new Pandora's Box book um, by the author I'm forgetting, but it's a totally a reasonable, you know, one-volume history of the war. On primary sources, they're a challenge for me. I would say that I wish I could use more of them, but there are three problems that reduced my ability to use primary sources. The first one was access, the second language barriers, and the third and most important was time. As a person on a very limited podcasting budget and without an academic affiliation, access to research materials is always a problem for me. If something is not available online or available through interlibrary loan, I pretty much do not have access to it. This means that there are entire mountains of primary source material at various places around the world that are just unavailable. The second problem, and honestly the least impactful, is that I only read and speak English, so anything in a foreign language is off the list. This has ended up not being a huge problem due to the other issues. The third problem, and most important, is time. I have a finite amount of time to work on the podcast, and it competes with family, with the job I have that actually pays the bills, and the occasional sleep. Because of this, I often have to really consider sort of bang for the buck on research, this means that while specific primary sources may be occasionally useful, some of them may be awesome, a lot of the specific information from them would not end up in episodes, or even for how much content is in the podcast, often at, are at a pretty high level. This often causes me to rely far more heavily on academic secondary sources, I generally feel that it's more important for me to read through that 200-page monograph by an actual historian rather than spend that same amount of time sifting through primary sources, only a small percentage of which will be beneficial to the episode. I'm also incredibly concerned, given the problems that I have access to only certain sources and that I only have so much time, that if I rely on primary sources too much, I will form an inaccurate picture of events. I do really value secondary sources that pull heavily from primary sources, uh, which present those primary sources directly. I generally point to books like uh, Lynn McDonald's series of books that contain huge amounts of just straight quotes from people who were there. I also think that it's important to say that this podcast does not represent, and was never intended to represent, some sort of new and groundbreaking set of research into the First World War. I am summarizing events and concepts that are presented by real historians in far more detailed manners in in their books. To close out this question, I will say that I think this podcast would be better if I could rely more heavily on primary sources. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about the podcast is that it exists. And that means episodes get released. And to make that happen, I have to be realistic about the amount of research time I have and that often leads to relying heavily on secondary sources from uh, wonderful uh, historians. Next up is a common question when discussing any war in history. The question of whether there was a decision that could have changed the outcome. Paul brings up a very specific scenario. I was listening to listener questions, and one was, did you think that there was a single defining decision or action that was the turning point that changed the outcome of the war? You said that there really wasn't, and I tend to agree. Well, thank you. However, one decision that has come up in several sources that I think may be one of those watershed moments that may have influenced the whole war was the decision, uh, uh, was Moltke's decision to send two divisions from the Western Front to the Eastern Front in early August 1914. They ended up not helping in the East, and I argued that their absence contributed greatly to General German offensives stalling and ultimately being turned back at the Marne. I was wondering if you found Moltke's decision to be as influential as I do." Okay, so I I have seen this specific decision come up a lot when this topic is introduced. Um, Paul mentions two divisions. I think it was actually four that got sent to the Eastern Front, which just makes the question even more relevant. The, The basic idea is that if the Germans concentrated more of their forces in the West, then the sort of grand strategic goal of their plan, which was to capture Paris and then trap the French armies in Eastern France, could have happened. I think this is so persistent because of the general belief that if Moltke had operated under a more strict interpretation of the Schlieffen plan, then the German attack would have been successful. This might have meant not transferring divisions to the east, and it also probably would have required Moltke to not make the decision to move troops to the south to meet the French attacks there, a decision that was made well before the war began. As Moltke constructed the plan, there were about 70 German divisions in the west when the war started. Uh, For the purposes of this question, I'm going to say that we give them another seven divisions to put on the right wing, and for reference, this would be about half the total strength of von Kluck's army, uh, which was on the far right of the German advance and the most powerful of all the German armies. I still don't think even seven divisions makes a decisive difference. Honestly, I think within the realistic constraints of the manpower of the German army, no amount of force on the right wing, with troops still available in the south to prevent the French from marching into the Ruhr and the Russians from marching into Berlin, could make the plan in 1914 work. And this is because, I believe, that the problem that the Germans had in 1914 had little to do with manpower, and was firmly rooted in mobility and logistics. The biggest problem with World War I offensives is not that there were not enough men available. That was rarely the problem. The problem was that it was impossible to project those men forward, through and beyond the enemy lines fast enough to prevent a response. The Germans do very well in the initial stages in 1914, but only because the Entente completely misreads the play. Even with the advantage of the enemy doing completely the best possible thing for the German attack, by the time that the Germans reach the Marne, they are running into the same problems that every other World War I offensive would. Essentially, They were limited, both in movement of military soldiers and supplies, to how fast and far their men could walk. This put limits on how far and fast they could advance, and they found that limit during the march to the Marne. The stories of German soldiers almost falling over from exhaustion are well documented. The French and British did have similar problems at this point. Their soldiers had been retreating from the Germans just as long as the Germans had been advancing. However, the critical part was that as the Germans advanced deeper into French territory, their their ability to push forward supplies and reinforcements drastically decreased. At the same time, the ability of the French and British to move reinforcements and supplies to help in the defense only increased. I personally believe that this problem prevents the Germans from ever taking Paris, and with Paris in French hands, it would have been very difficult for the Germans to advance any further south to cut off the French army. More troops only makes the supply situation worse, and it does not really solve the exhaustion problem or the problem of getting supplies to the front lines. Due to the issues with railroads being damaged, any German reinforcements would have just had to make the same marches as everyone else. I think I mentioned this in an answer to an earlier episode, but I've always been of the opinion that the First World War existed in a period where the armies were simply too large for the type of attacks that were being executed in 1914. Armies were too big for the traditional flanking maneuvers to really work, when there was nothing but the speed of the soldiers to propel them forward. The technological advances that helped the attackers would come along a generation later. However, at the same time, the best defensive mobility technologies, specifically the proliferation of rail travel, was already prevalent. This makes it far easier for the defending army to reinforce reposition and resupply their forces, in this case as the Entente forces who were trying to meet the Germans. Of course, all of this is just my opinion, as we are firmly off the map of historical fact and into the land of historical fiction, where opinions and theories are the rules of the game. So this isn't really a definitive answer, it's just my thoughts on the matter. Next up is a question from Benjamin Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. A running theme of the show has been the learning curve of the generals coming to grips with new technology. The truism has become we always prepare to fight the last war. What lessons can we take about being adaptable in learning more quickly? This is a really good question, because learning and adaptation, or the lack thereof, by many military leaders during the war often comes under a lot of criticism. There was a tendency to push a lot of blame onto leaders like Haig and Joffre for the absolute disasters that were the Entente offensives of 1915, 16, and 17. Some of these criticisms are absolutely justified, they were the leaders of the armies. When their armies made colossal mistakes, they should receive some of the blame. At the same time, other commanders get praised due their actions during the war, men like Ludendorff or Pétain or Plumer. It's tempting to point to those leaders, with Patan's push for more conservative offensives and a different role for artillery, Plumer with his bite and hold tactics, and Ludendorff for the German 1918 offensives and say wow, uh, those people really knew what they were doing. But in all those cases, those different strategies, just like the other leaders, did not win the war. Patton and Plumer's sm- slower offensives were ruinously expensive in artillery and still resulted in large casualties while only capturing small pieces of territory. The German spring offensives in 1918 certainly gained a lot of territory, but only at the cost of massive casualties among the best troops in the army, and they still did not achieve objectives worthy of that cost. And even beyond that, they were all operating in an environment in late 1917 and early 1918 that was drastically different from the environment during the first two years of the war. It was only the arrival of an entirely new and fresh army and the complete exhaustion of German manpower that brought the war to a conclusion. So what lessons should the commanders in the first three years have learned? Or what should we learn from their seeming failure to learn? I believe that what we should learn is that sometimes... There is no right answer to a question. Sometimes in both war and in life, you will end up with a challenge that does not have an immediate or easy solution. On the Western Front, from the point near the end of 1914 when the Front was established until 1918, when the manpower pools on both sides begin to simply run dry, I do not believe there was anything that the military leaders on either side could have done to quickly win the war. They simply did not have the offensive tools to deal with both the physical defenses that their armies would have to push through and meet the ability of the defender to rush in reinforcements. There were simply too many guns and too many men on both sides. Defensive mobility, usually railways primarily, would always get the better of offensive mobility, which had to deal with transporting goods and reinforcements over over a shattered battlefield. The solutions to these problems would only be available near the end of the war, and it would have been far more to do with the economic changes than drastic changes on the military side. So if there is not a correct answer to the puzzle of how to win the war by offensive action, then why did they continue to attack? Well, to understand that, it's important to consider the political dimension of the conflict. It was very difficult for any major country to justify doing nothing and just biding their time. And so they were almost universally put in a position where they had to be proactive, and that meant attack. Now, the Germans avoided this on the Western Front because they had other areas where they could also attack and also do things. But the French, especially, but also the British, didn't really have those areas. There are periphery areas around Europe and and Asia and the Middle East, but they weren't going to win the war there. I guess an important addition to this idea that You know, we need to be able to realize when we're in situations where there is no good answer is that it's very hard to know when you're in such a situation at the time. The military and political leaders did not know that what they were trying to do, which is win the war on the Western Front, was impossible. They did not know that there was not a good answer, which is obviously an advantage that we have when looking back and trying to evaluate their choices. Okay, our last question comes from Diane. I just finished this second set of listener questions this year, so this may be already covered, but I thought I'd suggest it. Given the rather short amount of time between the two world wars, there seemed to be a lot of people who were involved in both. Some of them uh, are well known, but I looked up General Patan this evening, and I was distressed to discover that he'd been a Nazi collaborator during World War II. I knew I recognized that name. I'm thinking a review of some of these people would be interesting and instructive. Just a thought. So, one of the problems I've had uh, the last few months is where to end the podcast. I touched on this a little bit in last episode, but given how seemingly intertwined the First and Second World War are, it's hard to determine where one story ends and the other begin. This is especially true when it comes to discussing people who were deeply involved in both. Churchill, Batan, Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, and so many others further down the political and military ladder had experience in the First and Second World Wars. At some point, I ended up with some rough outlines that covered basically exactly the group of people you're talking about. My problem was that the episodes on their actions after 1918 felt too abbreviated. None of those experiences, like for example, Patan collaborating with the Nazis, are simple stories. So those episodes just sort of got dropped off the list because I, I just couldn't make them work with a reasonable scope. I think to properly tell those stories, you would need a whole new podcast, which brings me to a discussion about the future. Next episode will be an interview with some representatives from the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. I think it will be very interesting, and I will be discussing um, the impact of the centennial on the museum, you know, public interest in in the events, as well as some information about what it was like for soldiers returning home uh, from the war over there. And then I will be releasing five episodes from the Patreon feed that I'm releasing here onto the normal feed. And then there will be an epilogue episode to discuss the legacy of the First World War. Then I'll be taking a few months off from releasing any more episodes, although that generally just means research kicks into overdrive. And then sometime early next year, I'll be dropping several episodes onto this feed about the League of Nations. These will also be the first episodes of my next podcast project, which, as many of you requested, is just continuing our story forward into the Second World War. Precise details on that podcast are not really determined yet, but the goal will be to take the style of this show and just move it forward in history by a a few decades. We'll be spending a good chunk of time, unlike with this podcast back in 2014, in the lead-up to the war, before we get to the traditional start of the war narrative. What I'm calling the Time to Panzers in Poland will likely be several months, maybe even a year. There's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I don't know the name yet. I don't know the precise timing. Other than at some point in the near future, you will get episodes about that podcast on this podcast feed. So just stay subscribed to this feed, and then at some point in a few months from now, you'll have some new episodes waiting for you. And hopefully you will join me on my next journey when it begins. As always... Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode for that wonderful interview with the people from the National World War I Museum and Memorial.